Well, Romans chapter 11. And this is, this is really a milestone day because I complete Romans 11. But it's also the 100th message that I've preached on the book of Romans. And they're all online. So uh, it's been a pretty comprehensive study. So if you want to go back and check it out, you're welcome to do that. But we are in Romans chapter 11. And we'll be picking up near the end of the chapter. I'll tell you exactly where when we, when we get there or when I get there. But the long history of Israel's rebellion and rejection of Christ as their Messiah will end when they are in a time of great distress known as the tribulation period. The great tribulation is punishment for a Christ-rejecting world and an unbelieving Israel. So Jeremiah prophesied this, chapter 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved out of it. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, we read about that deliverance. It says, And so all Israel will be saved, not every individual, but a great multitude. As it is written, there will come out of Zion the deliverer. That's the Lord Jesus. And shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. We also saw that at that time, verse 27... The new covenant will be enacted with Israel. God is going to write this new covenant not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of their heart. And it says in verse 27, For this is my covenant unto them. Now notice, when I shall take away their sins. Take away. That The word literally means cut off. I will cut off their sin. Remember, when Jesus, he says, if your right hand offends you or your right hand, you know, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Cut it off. Now, not literally. But what Jesus was saying, if there is an occasion that you keep stumbling over for sin, you, you need to take drastic measures to deal with it, to stop sinning. The drastic measure that God took to take away sin, as we read in verse 27 was the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.3, speaking of the Old Testament sacrificial system, it says, In those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. But then in verse 12 of Hebrews 10, But this man, speaking of the Lord Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. And then reading in Romans eleven twenty eight, 28, we find that God's promises are irrevocable. The Greek word literally means without repentance. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. King James, without repentance. Now, the gifts, and that's the Greek word, the charismata, 
are probably those, I think, anyway, I think he's referring to those things that he brought up in Romans chapter 9 and verse 4 when he was speaking about the blessings that God bestowed upon Israel. Who are Israelites? To who pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. All of those things will be fulfilled because God's gifts are irrevocable. Now, they're not going back under the law. They're going to have that new law written where? Uh, On their hearts. God's plans never fail. Your plans and my plans, they fail. Sometimes we have some success, but a lot of times we don't. But God's plans never fail. He doesn't need a backup plan. Israel's rejection of God's mercy in Christ, and we've seen this throughout this chapter, led to the Gentiles receiving mercy. So he says in in verse 30, For as you, Gentiles, in times past have not believed God, and if you want to see the state of the Gentiles, just go back to Romans chapter 1. Yet have now obtained mercy through their, that's Israel's unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy, they, the Jews, Israel, may obtain mercy. So we know that Israel was blinded because of their disobedience. And God used their blindness to save the Gentiles. He is now using Gentile salvation to provoke Israel to jealousy and using the mercy shown to the Gentiles to ultimately save the Jews. It was an incredible plan. Nobody would have thought that out or thought of that. And the gospel coming to the Gentiles is one of the, the mystery truths of the scripture. Look in the, or Just look here, Ephesians 3, 4. Whereby when you read, Paul says, you may understand my knowledge, and he calls this the mystery of Christ. Now here, remember what I said. A mystery was something that was hidden for, for a period of time, and then God revealed it in his time. And that's what it describes here. Which in other ages, Ephesians 3, 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That would be the Holy Spirit. All right, Paul, what is that mystery that was hidden and and now is being revealed by you? Verse 6, Ephesians 3, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs and of the same body, that's the church, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's us, right? That's, that's almost all of us here this morning. And then in Romans 9.32, he says, For God hath concluded, interesting word, concluded, it literally translates shut up in a prison, to lock up in a prison. God hath concluded them all in unbelief. He shut them up. Christ rejecting, rebellious, blinded Israel in unbelief that he might have mercy on all so that through their unbelief, the gospel would go out to the whole world. Listen, sinners do not deserve mercy. They deserve what? Justice. Mercy is getting what you do not deserve. 
I told you the story. It's so good. I'll tell it again. I had a teacher in school. Some of you may know him, Marvin Lubinell, great creationist, apologist, kind of like a fossil expert. And he was in, when he was said when when he was going through college, he he ran through a red light or a speeding ticket, whatever it was he got, and he got pulled over. And he was a poor college student. He had absolutely no money. And he went to, to, to uh, the court rather than just send the money in. And he, and he shows up and, and uh, the judge says, so how do you plead? What's your plea? And he says, guilty. <clears throat> and he says, well, sir, you didn't have to come here to plead guilty. You just had to pay the money and send your fine. And he goes, sir, he says, I, I came here. I'm guilty, but I wanted to come to ask you for mercy. And you know what the judge said? First time in my life on this bench that somebody has asked me for mercy. Mercy granted, ticket dismissed. That's a neat story, right? Mercy is getting what you do not deserve. Romans 9.17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised you up. Now, he was the most powerful man on earth at that time. God brought him into that place of power, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth, right, in delivering Israel from their captivity in Egypt, 400 years. And then it says in verse 18, going back to chapter 9, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he wills, he's hardening. He hardeneth. Now, speaking about the Pharaoh there. Did the Pharaoh deserve mercy? No, nobody deserves mercy, right? We deserve justice. No. Could he have obtained mercy? I say yes, upon repentance. But Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. He chose not to repent. What did God then do? Hardened him in that state of unrepentance. Psalm 119, verse 68. This is a declaration of of the character of God. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Now, when he says thou art good, this denotes God's essential, essential attribute or character. He is good. God is good all the time. He is good by nature. Thou art good and doest good. God is good in the sense that he deeply and sincerely loves all people. If our understanding of God is wrong, everything that flows from it will be wrong as well. We then create a God of our own making rather than what he himself declares himself to be. Good. He is good. It also says that he does good. So art good denotes God's essential attribute. Does good is God's relative goodness displayed towards sinners in showing mercy and giving men good things. The rain, right? 
falls on the just and the unjust because God is good. Now, Romans 9.32 says, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief. That would be the Jews, the unbelieving Christ rejecting Jews, that he might have mercy upon all. Now, unbelief here is apathis. And here, listen to this word, unbelief. It's very interesting. It literally means the condition of being unpersuadable. Obstinate. How many people do you know like that? Colossians 3, 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Same word. Same word. Translated unbelief. So they're disobeying God. They will not receive God's remedy for their sins. They are unpersuadable. They are unpersuadable. In Acts chapter 28, verse 23, and when they appointed him a day, that was Paul, when he was was in in Roman custody, under house arrest, there came many to 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 him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. Notice what he did. He's, he's teaching Scripture. He's expositing the Scriptures to them in the Old Testament. But look what it says. Persuading them or attempting to persuade them to change their thinking concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and the prophets. And he did this from morning till evening. Look what it says in verse 24, Acts 28. You don't have to turn it. I'll just read it to you. And some believed the things that were spoken. They were persuaded. And some believed not. They were obstinate. They were unpersuadable. They were unpersuadable. What happens to those who will not be persuaded concerning Christ? God's wrath ultimately falls on everyone who will not be persuaded that they need Jesus as their Savior. That's, that's God's judgment. They rejected God's mercy. They received God's judgment, justice in Christ. So Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, in praise of God, Paul expresses praise to God here in spirit-filled language that we call a doxology. And the word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, meaning glory, splendor, or grandeur. And the word logos, meaning word or speaking. So it's speaking a word about the glory and the splendor, the majesty of God. And his language here goes beyond human comprehension, which is what I titled my message. He begins with four exclamations. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out so he begins with the praise of god's riches romans 2 4 says do you despise the riches of his goodness so here's his riches here's some of his riches his goodness his forbearance and his long suffering god is long suffering the bible says because he is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance all should be persuaded that's his desire to persuade all to turn to Christ. 
in verses in verse 23 of Romans 9, he speaks on the riches of his glory to those who believe. Look, that's what we're headed for, right? Now, we presently have all riches in Christ Jesus, but we have the riches of eternal glory that we're going to see someday. Romans 10, 12 says, there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, right? They're all the same sinners at heart. For the same Lord over all is, look at this, is rich unto all that call upon him. He will bestow upon them the riches of Christ if they would but ask. Romans eleven twelve. Now if the fall of them, the Jews, be the riches of the world, salvation for the Gentiles, and the diminishing of them, the Jews, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. What a great blessing is going to come to Israel when Israel repents and they receive their deliverer who comes out of Zion. And there will be a great turning to God in Israel's future. And that's what he's talking about here with the fullness. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had eternal glory, Philippians chapter 2. Yet for your sakes, he became impoverished, poor. What is it talking about? His incarnation as a man, and in a body, his suffering and his humility. Yet, that yet that ye through his poverty, his willingness to come to this earth, take upon himself the form of a man, go to the cross and suffer and die for your sins, that you would become rich spiritually. You're rich. I'm not talking about your bank accounts. You're rich in Christ Jesus. I never tried this, but I knew if I knew a pastor once he. He didn't have health insurance and, and he had to go to the emergency room and, and they said they, had, they wanted to know how he was going to pay for this and he says, my father will take care of it. And they said, sir, can we have his name? <laughs> he was speaking about his heavenly father. Colossians 2.3 says, in whom Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Luke 10, 21, it says, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and prudent, people who think they knew things, and you have revealed them to babes. So truth is withheld from the proud of heart, but it's revealed to the humble of heart, to the humble of heart. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. And then he praises God, for his judgments, his judgments are his righteous acts. Job asked the question, shall the judge of all the earth do what is right? What's the answer? Yes. Why does he always do what is right? Because God is good all the time. That's his essential character. And then he praised God for his inscrutable ways or doings. His ways are past finding out literally means beyond tracing. Beyond tracing. Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways. Your ways, saith the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. 
But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So we, we, know, we know some things that God has revealed, but we certainly don't know all the things about God, the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but one day face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know even as I am also known. That glass is going to be completely cleaned up and cleared up. Listen, if you think that you have perfectly figured out the ways of God, you haven't. No man has. His ways are beyond. Beyond us. His thoughts are far higher than ours. He leaves no, no trace of some of the things that he's done. And that's, a, that's an interesting thought because a lot of times something will happen in your life and, and you know, people like to figure things out and everything and, and I don't know why, I don't know why I don't. No, because God's, God's going to take the trace of that away. And then maybe later on down the road, you'll see exactly what he was doing. But what happens is people get in trouble and they, or life gets, something bad happens and they blame God. Where was God? Where was God? Right? That's the way people think. Then he goes to three questions. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Who hath first given to him and it will be recompensed unto him again? So when he talks about who can know the mind of the Lord, he's talking about God's faculty of understanding all things comprehensively. His omniscience. It's beyond our understanding. Who has been his counselor? Or his advisor, Isaiah 40, 13, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, because that's what Paul's referring to here, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, has taught him. Who could teach God anything? Remember Job? I mean, Job was down as low as a man can go. What did God do? He took him up to the heavens. He said, where were you, Job, when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I did this and this and this? Tell me if you can, Job. And what was Job's reaction ultimately? He repented, the Bible says. He repented before God. When is the last time you read Isaiah? Right? That was a beautiful verse, Isaiah 40, 13. Did you know that Kenneth Hannah wrote that there are more than 400 quotations for, from or allusions to the book of Isaiah in the New Testament? That's 400. J. Alexander noted that 47 of the 66 chapters of Isaiah are either quoted or alluded to in the New Testament and that though 21 quotations are attributed directly to Isaiah were drawn from chapters 1, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 29, 40, 50, 42, 53, 61, and 65. When is the last time you read the book of Isaiah? To give you a better understanding of the of the New Testament. The only, the only Old Testament book referred to more frequently than Isaiah in the New Testament is the book of Psalms. It's a, it, Isaiah is a powerful book. Hard to deal with at times. And then he asks, who has first given to God? In other words, who is God in debt to? Who is God in debt to? That comes from Job 41.11. Who, who has been first to give to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the entire heaven is mine. 
Who does God owe anything to? The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the hills too. Everything is is his by his right of sovereign creatorship. And then he ends with three proclamations in verse 36. Now you're getting the sense that I could have preached 12 messages just on these verses. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. In Colossians 1, Paul will use that very same language and he will apply it to Jesus Christ. Christ is the origin of all things, the agent of all things, and the goal of all creation is to him, to his glory. So it says all things are of God. He is the source. He is the source of all things, not a cosmic big bang out of which life emerged. You believe that? You believe that that some explosion in the distant past brought everything into existence ultimately that we see today? I was listening to a little lecture on Premier Christian Radio by, by Justin Breerly. And he, he asked this, he gave this illustration. He says, what's the chance of rolling a dice, one dice, is it a die? <laughs> one die, and having it come up six. You mathematicians, what, what are the odds? One in six. What's the, what is the chance of doing it twice in a row? One in 36, six times six. What's the chance of rolling a dice 70 times and having it come up six every time? Ah, you, don't, you, you haven't figured that one out, right? It's one in 10 to the 55th power. That is one with 55 zeros after it. Not likely, but possible, right? And he gives this, this, makes this point. You would have to continuously roll that dice for 100 trillion, 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 trillion years by the laws of probability for it to come up six, 70 times in a row. What are the odds of us being here by accident? by a cosmic explosion. One in 10 to the 55th power is the same odds for the, for the expansion reign of the universe from the moment of the Big Bang, as they would say, to allow for life to come and to happen, not too fast or not too slow. So here's how he applied this. And this is beyond me. The Big Bang hit rolling a number six 70 times on the first try. That's what would have had to have happened. Just for the expansion rate of the universe to occur so that life could be sustained or initiated. And the expansion rate of the universe is just one of 30 such finely tuned constants. It's an absolute impossibility that life came from nothing, from a big explosion. Everything would have been 
had to have been absolutely perfect. If you've never seen the video, The Privileged Planet, I would encourage you to watch it. You'll get some idea of that. Our God is amazing, is he not? Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all the host. Isaiah 45, 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none else, none other. So all things are of God. Secondly, all, comes, all things come through his merciful hand. He is the agency of creation. And I'm going to read you that verse in Colossians 6, 1 verse 16, speaking of Jesus. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, which means literally all things are held together. Aren't you glad God is holding everything together? What would happen to this universe if he didn't? What's going to happen in the end when Jesus re- removes his restraining hand and they have the, everything's going to melt with fervent heat? Praise God. And then it says, all things are to him. That means to the attainment of his glory. So what can we do as creatures with with the God presented here in this doxology? Just bow down before him. Worship and adore him. Because it says in verse 36, Romans 11, the latter part, to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's how Paul signs off on this. Worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of the glad, all the glad songs we sing, worthy of the offerings that we bring. He alone is worthy. Psalm 145, verse 3, great is the Lord. Amen? And greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable, beyond comprehension. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty works. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works. This ending by Paul, to the section dealing with Israel's past, Romans 9, Israel's present in Paul's time, Romans 10, and Israel's future in Romans 11, signals that God has a glorious future in store for the nation of Israel. The nation that he had chosen to be a vessel of salvation through whom Christ would come and and bring salvation to the whole world. But for each one of us laboring in a sin-cursed world, not understanding the ways of the Lord, why, God, why? We should be comforted, absolutely comforted, in knowing that God is in control. 
even when things make no sense to us. We need to remind ourselves he is sovereign. We need to remind ourselves that his ways are past finding out. We can't sit down and plot and try to figure out exactly what God is doing. We only have this roadmap, right? The Bible to guide us. So we should be comforted in knowing that God is in control and we should go forth serving him with confidence. Not in our own abilities, but him who created all things and sustains all things and provides all things for us according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said, many Christians estimate estimate difficulty in the light of their own resources and and they thus attempt very little. And they always fail. All giants, spiritually speaking, have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on His power and His presence to be with them. So the real question isn't How big are your problems? The question to ask is, how big is your God?